Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we, if you didn't know, we are in a series through the whole year, working through the Bible chronologically from the very beginning to the very end. And for the last several weeks, we've been in the prophets, which is a big chunk of the Old Testament. And so for a while, we were in the the northern kingdom of Israel, the prophets there, the story there of that nation. And last week, we started a series called Everything Goes South, as we're looking at the southern kingdom that's called Judah. These are still God's people. It's still Israel, if you will, but they are now called Judah after the original country had a civil war. And so they're going through kind of this rocky time, as, they're, as the people in the north did, where they stray from God. And so God, sort of in his grace, will send prophets to them to warn them to turn from their sin and turn to him. And then he just leaves it open to whatever they're going to do. And he promises, if you can use that word, judgment upon them if they do not turn to him from their sin. And so we find ourselves kind of week after week with the same overarching idea, with that being the idea, but every week's been a little bit different as we look at the specific message of each individual prophet. This week we're going to be in the book of Zephaniah. Now some of you didn't know that was even in the Bible, right? I could have made that up and you would have just gone with it, okay? Zephaniah is in the Bible. He's a prophet in the Old Testament of the southern kingdom of Judah, obviously, about 630 B.C., if you care about that sort of thing. And his... His message is interesting. Like last week, it's very short, just three short chapters is all Zephaniah is. But he says a lot in three chapters. There's a lot going on here, and there's two major themes that he sort of deals with, and we're going to look at one of them today as sort of the thrust of the idea behind the prophet and the prophecy of Zephaniah. Um, So what I want to do first is sort of read a couple of scriptures throughout Zephaniah. We'll kind of skip through. So um, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you have your Bible app, you can click on that. It's right there for you, or it's on the screen. We're going to look at sort of um, a survey of Zephaniah and see the, one of the main themes that we're going to deal with today. Kind of one reason that God is kind of so ticked off with his people here, and we'll see how it relates to us and what we can kind of do to avoid that same judgment, hopefully. So Zephaniah, we're going to start in chapter 2. There's a lot in chapter 1 we could get to, but to get to the main theme we're going to hit today, Zach, Zeph- I almost said Zechariah, that's in a couple weeks, not yet, okay? Zephaniah chapter 2, starting at verse number 1. Here is what Zephaniah says to the people. Gather together, yes, gather together, you shameless nation. Gather before judgment begins, before your time to repent is blown away like chaff. Act now before the fierce fury of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins. Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Perhaps even yet the Lord will protect you, protect you from his anger on that day of destruction. Now skip to the beginning of chapter number 3, Zephaniah 3, verse 1. He says, what sorrow awaits rebellious, polluted Jerusalem, the city of violence and crime. 
No one can tell it anything. It refuses all correction. It does not trust in the Lord or draw near to its God. Now skip down to verse 11, Zephaniah 3, verse 11. God warns them, on that day you will no longer need to be ashamed, for you will no longer be rebels against me. I will remove all proud and arrogant people from among you. There will be no more haughtiness on my holy mountain. Those who are left will be lowly and humble, for it is they who trust in the name of the Lord. So the theme that we're seeing here, really the root of God's anger to his people through Zephaniah, is the problem of pride. So let's look at some of the descriptions here. Again, he calls Judah, the nation, he calls them shameless. They don't even attempt at this point to turn from their sin, it seems like. They're almost flaunting this in God's face. He calls Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the nation, okay? He says, no one can tell it anything. It's like raising a teenager. (laughs) No one can tell it anything, okay? It refuses correction. And so now they're going to face judgment. And so at the end, we just read, God says, I will remove all the proud and arrogant people. No haughtiness is allowed on my holy mountain. So God is angry at the people's sin. Yes, obviously, that's a given. But really, at the root of that is pride, because at the root of all sin is pride. The root of all sin is pride. God is angry at not just their pride, but almost the pride in their sin. Their refusal to listen to his warning is their refusal to turn to him, even though they've been told time after time, year after year, by prophet after prophet, they still just keep doing the same old thing and just, they're just, oh, God's never really going to destroy us. God's never going to really judge us. He's just talking big. He's not going to do it. That's kind of where they're, where they're at. And so we see here, God looks down upon pride, but God looks for humility. God looks down on pride, but he looks for humility. In in these verses, again, God says, seek the Lord, all who are humble. He tells them, seek to live humbly. He tells them to be lowly and humble. So the issue is pride. So what we're going to look at today, this idea is less is more. We're going to get this idea of humility today. That's the key phrase. If we want to avoid the pride that is the root of all sin, and we want to avoid the pride that leads to the, the situation that Judah found themselves in, and that we all sometimes find ourselves in, it would, we don't have to learn pride, okay? Would it be safe to say that? We're ingrained with pride. Like, I love me some me automatically, okay? I don't, you know, I don't have to have, I, it, that's just how we are. We have to learn humility. We have to learn how to push against what is natural and what is naturally bad for us. So we're going to see that less is more. And what we're seeing is less me in my life means more in my life. When your life becomes less about you, your life can become so much more. That's what we're going to see today. But here's the, I'll say this up front. Humility is hard, okay? Muhammad Ali said it best. He said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. (laughs) And I'm sure that was a little tongue-in-cheek being the showman that he was, but still, it's true. But humility is so extremely important. So the 19th and 20th century uh, minister and author, Andrew Murray, he writes this. He says, humility is the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. So as we said at the beginning, pride is the root of all sin. So then the inverse of that is also true. Humility then is the root of all virtue. So any good deed that we would do for the right reasons, the root of that comes with some humility. Kindness toward others means I'm putting them above my own interest in being kind to them. It may cost me something to show kindness. That 
I have to have humility to do that. Any sort of good thing you do, any sort of virtue that you strive to have or that you maybe do have or practice, the root of that is humility. And so less really is more. Now, we might think that we know a lot about humility, and maybe we do, but let's look at how we do that. And the, the best way to do that is to look at an, at an example. If you want to know how to do something, okay, let's look at somebody who really did that really well, maybe perfectly, and then see if we can emulate that at all. So I think the best example of humility is Jesus Christ himself. So we're going to see for a few minutes here at the outset this example of humility in Jesus, both in word and in deed. So I have a few scriptures up here that I'm just going to reference quickly, but in case you wanted to write them down or take a picture of the slide and look at them later this week, whatever, um, I want to show you, these are just a few, half a dozen in just the book of John alone, showing us that through the words of Jesus, he was humble. He showed and exhibited humility. So John 5, 19, Jesus says that the Son, him, he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. John 5, verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. I only carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. So Jesus makes it very plain. I'm not in it for me. I'm not trying to build anything for me. I'm doing what the Father is doing. I'm doing what he sent me to do. John 6, 38, Jesus says, I've, I've come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. John 7, 16, Jesus says, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Now, you might say, well, that's just a cop-out. You know, I just, I'm just doing what God told me to do so he doesn't get in trouble. No, but he means that. He's doing exactly what his Father has chosen him to do. What, from, as we'll see, before creation, this was always in the plan. John 8, verse 50, Jesus says, I have no wish to glorify myself because God is going to glorify me. That's a, maybe a good reminder for, for us. Like the more I try to make myself something big, I may be taking away what God might want to do in me that's big. And we'll get there as we go along this morning. John 14, 10, last one. Jesus says, the words that I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. So Jesus saw himself as simply the messenger boy simply the vessel through which God the Father was going to perform his perfect plan. We see this in the words of Jesus, but we know that actions speak louder than words, right? And so we see also through the actions of Jesus, his humility, his perfect humility. So I want to I share with you just for a minute here, one of my favorite portions of the entire Bible. Okay, this gets me excited every time I read this. I just love this idea. This scripture, Philippians 2, 3 through 11, shows us the humility of Jesus to a degree that we can't even begin to understand. So let's look at it here for just a minute. Philippians 2, starting at verse number 3. Paul writing here, set, he first has a, he's telling us, he's setting us up. Okay, he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And then here's what he says. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What was that attitude? Let's keep reading. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above 
all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So do you see what's happened here? Do you see what Paul is showing us here? Jesus is God. He is eternal. He is omnipotent. He is co-equal to the Father and the Spirit in eternity past. Yet he humbled himself to become his own creation. So he's there in Genesis 1 with the Father, creating everything that's ever been made, including this planet, including every human on this planet. And in order to save those people who rebelled against him, right, and his Father, he came to live on his creation as his creation. So a lot of humans over time have claimed to be God. But only one God ever actually became human. Why? Because it takes humility for a God to become human. No other God in any other story, any other myth, any other legend, any other time period any other, has ever done that. They're, they're above everything. They're just messing with the little ants on the dirt clod called earth. You know, they're sort of mean sometimes. You read some of the ancient legends and myths, they're mean to the people on earth. They just mess, just for fun, we're kind of bored, uh, you know, up here in heaven or wherever they are, Mount Olympus. We're just going to mess with the humans. We're going to make life difficult for them. But, but God's plan, Jesus' plan, it was totally the opposite of that. Like, they don't deserve anyone to save them, yet I'm going to do it myself. And Jesus is okay with this plan. He humbled himself to come to this earth, even though he is God. And Paul makes it very clear. When he came, he didn't come as a high and mighty ruler in a very rich and wealthy part of the world. He came to a blue-collar family, to a young family in a small town. Uh, he was born, you know, around stable animals and somewhere in a cave or a barn or something, right? So he came in the most crazy way you can imagine a god would come to the earth. He didn't come in the clouds the first time. Now, the next time he comes, it's going to be in the clouds. Like, the next time he comes, we're going to know it's God coming, you know, this time. But the first time, he came so inconspicuously, it required ultimate humility on his part to do that. It did. Let's look briefly at his ministry. His ministry was nothing but humility. We kind of referenced this a couple weeks ago. Let's look at it again. The, the humility of Jesus in his ministry. He pursued the outcast. Like, he... He was around the elite sometimes, but it usually they didn't like him being around them. They wanted him to go away. He pursued the outcast. He touched the lepers and the unclean. He ate with tax collectors, who were some of the most despised people in his own nation. He spent time with prostitutes, but in a good way. Okay, don't get confused there. Uh, even his final act with his disciples before his crucifixion is he washes their feet. Now, you would even think now, whoa, yeah, that's gross. Yes, however, I have nice shoes on. My feet are fairly clean. I, I, I shower occasionally, okay? I scrub my little tootsies, right? So here's the thing. Uh, I don't even know that's the right word. Tootsies, is that the right word for that? I don't know. Anyway, anyway so piggies. piggies, whatever, yeah. Anyway, so think about that. Some, some of the disciples maybe didn't even own shoes. Maybe they have sandals, the same pair they've had for a long time. They're walking around dirt and mud. The elements are going to get there. It's going to be gross. It is such a debased position that it was the lowest servant in the home is the one who would wash the feet of people when they came into your home. The lowest of the low. 
And some scholars would say it's even Jewish, it had to be a non-Jewish servant in your home. Even like the lowest Jewish servant, they're too good to wash the feet of your guests. But yet Jesus, as his final act of love for his closest followers, even the one who betrayed him just hours later, he washes their feet. That's their lasting memory of their friend, their leader, their teacher, their guys washing their feet. That takes humility. His final prayer, uh, just after that, he prays to God, not my will, but your will be done. So it wasn't just when he's preaching and he's, things are going great that he says, I'm just doing what God told me to do. It's like when he knows he's going to die in a few hours, a brutal, agonizing death, he says, I'm still on the God's will train. I'm not going to jump off now that I know things are getting hot. Because he's like, this is the whole point. I've been here for this reason. And even his final words, some of his final words on the cross as he's dying show ultimate humility. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's going to take a pretty humble person to say those words in that setting. So Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. And Paul gives us a pretty tall order. Remember at the beginning of Philippians 2, he says, you guys need to have the same attitude. And I'm like, Paul, give me a break, dude. Like, seriously? Are you going to ask me to do that? He's like, yeah, yeah, let's go for it. Try to have as much humility as possible. You're never going to measure up to the humility of a God coming to earth, okay? You're just not going to do that. But he's like, he gives us this example of what a life of humility looks like, what the point of it is. And so we try to follow that example of humility. But humility can be confusing if you think about it in the way in which I'm going to probably confuse you right now, okay? There's a paradox to humility that I want to talk about for a minute. The paradox of humility. Let me give you one Old Testament example, then we'll look at Jesus too. So in Numbers chapter 12, it says that Moses, okay, Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. Who wrote Numbers chapter 12? (laughs) Moses, right? There's a paradox there. He's... It may have been somebody else afterward adding to the law. We don't know that. But he's given credit historically for writing the first five books of the Bible in which uh, Numbers is there. So he wrote about himself in the third person, which seems really prideful. Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. Now, that's just funny, and that's cute. But here's an actual example of that. If he really was that humble, so this humble guy, the same guy, who is so humble, when God chooses him for this great mission, he tries to think of every excuse to avoid doing anything big and great for God. He, I can't do it. I have a stuttering problem. I'm kind of shy. I don't, I'm, I'm not capable, right? He's, he seems like a pretty humble guy. Yet, that same guy stands in front of Pharaoh, who thinks he is a God, and says, my God says, let his people go. So that doesn't sound very humble either, does it? This guy barging in to this human deity figure, demanding something. Hey, get rid of your million free slave labor people so they can come into the desert with me. Like, that seems like a very humble guy who's going to demand something of someone like that. Is that humility? Jesus also is a paradox of humility. Let's look at two scriptures that seem to contradict each other, but they're both about Jesus. So first, Matthew 11, 29. Jesus says this, take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Again, Jesus is telling us, I'm humble. Within me is ultimate humility that is good for you, which we'll come back to this verse again in a minute. So we see him claiming humility, but then he also says this in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one can come to the Father except through me. It does not sound like a very humble statement by Jesus talking about himself. You think there are multiple ways to God. Wrong. There's only one way, and I'm him. That's not humility, is it? There's a paradox here. Jesus says, I'm humble and lowly of heart. You know, I'm just doing what the, what the Father says. I'm the only way to him. It's through me, only through me. It just seems like it doesn't make any sense. But I think that in our modern way of thinking about it, there's another word sometimes that's misunderstood, and that's meekness. Another version of that, Jesus says, I'm meek and lowly at heart. So I think we sometimes misunderstand humility and we misunderstand meekness kind of at the same time because they're sort of the same thing. So meekness, we would think, is like kind of weak, kind of anemic, kind of a person that just goes with the flow and doesn't make any waves. And they just, you know, I'm I'm humble, I'm meek, I'm not going to force my way on anybody, I'm not going to force my opinion on you, whatever. That's not what that means. Meekness is not weakness, it is strength under control. You've probably heard that before. Meekness is not weakness, it is strength under control. Let me give you an example of this. So uh, a bronco is a pretty strong animal, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's fierce. Try entering a wild bronco into the Kentucky Derby and see how that goes. It's not even going to get into the starting gate. Maybe you've even seen that. Sometimes they have horses that they have to give it a couple seconds because it's, you know, trying to buck the guy off, and it's just the jockey's having a hard time controlling it. Maybe got nerves, or maybe, you know, it's ready to go. It knows what's coming. And so they have to kind of give it a minute. A a Bronco is never going to win the Kentucky Derby, okay? It's because it's strength, but it's not under control. So it's ineffective. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in that situation. It doesn't work in life either. Um, Strength under control is what is effective, and that's really what meekness is. It's a thoroughbred. They've been trained. They know what their job is, and they know how to do it. It requires kind of constraining a super strong, intelligent animal to focus on the goal, to accomplish the goal. That's what meekness really is. So meekness doesn't mean that we're weak. It doesn't mean that we're a human doormat. It doesn't mean we let people run all over us. It doesn't mean that we let people control us and manipulate and just go along for the ride. That's not what meekness is. And there's a practical way that I want to show how this works, this paradox of humility. This is Paul again in Ephesians chapter 4. He's going to show us a very practical way in which humility and meekness play out in our lives. So Ephesians 4, verse 14, Paul says this. He writes, then we will no longer be immature like children. So what Paul is talking about in the first half of Ephesians 4 is unity in the church and maturity in the church. So he's saying unity is so important. We've got to learn how to live together, function together, work together as a body works. All the parts are different, but we have to work together to, to meet a goal. And he talks about the ministry or the pastors and leaders in the church to help to grow the church in maturity and unity. So he says, when we get this down, we'll no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. This is a practical paradox of humility, is speaking the truth in love. So, because when Paul talks about speaking the truth, he's talking about coming against false teaching. He's not saying just believe everything you hear. He's saying there are some things you have to oppose in life. There are some people that you have to distance yourself in life. There are some situations you have to stand up and say enough. There are things in the society that you just can't go along with. There are things that happen at your job that you just can't participate in. And you have to say, I'm drawing a line and that's it. So we have to speak the truth is what Paul's saying here. Because sometimes when we avoid speaking the truth, 
it's not because we're humble. It could be because we're cowards, you know, if we're, if we're really honest. I know it's a tough word. Sometimes we're just too scared to stand up for what we know is right. Sometimes there's a big price to pay, and we're like, I don't know if I'm willing to pay that price right now. I just need to kind of fly under the radar and make it happen. That's not humility. There's a different reason sometimes that we don't speak the truth. So sometimes Paul says we have to correct people. We have to confront people. Sometimes we have to make boundaries. We have to defend ourselves. We have to sometimes set the record straight. We have to speak the truth even if it's difficult or unpopular or awkward or uncomfortable. He says we have to speak the truth. So not speaking is not automatically meekness or humility. But he says the goal in speaking the truth is to do it in love or out of a heart of love. So when we speak the truth to people, it's not trying to show them up. It's not trying to you know, have a gotcha moment. Okay? That's not in love. The truth has to be spoken in love. The goal is not to put them in their place, you know, to embarrass them in front of our peers. That's not the point. It's not to try to make a point or try to act like we're superior morally or spiritually. That's, maybe, maybe you did speak the truth, but was it in love? That's, that's the paradox of humility. That's the thing we have to face. So we should love the truth and aim to speak the truth in love, but we have to have both parts of this. Okay? So if we speak the truth, but it's not loving, it's not completely the truth in the way that Paul and then I think Jesus would also affirm. If we just love but never speak the truth, then it's not really being truthful because we're skirting certain issues maybe for our own sake or so we don't have to maybe face a consequence of speaking the truth in love. Even if, we, even if you do this right, you sometimes will still pay a price for it. So let me just you know, squash that thought. If I do this exactly right, everything's going to go great. No. You can communicate the truth that's hard to tell someone in the perfect way, and they may still blow up on you. And they may still sever that relationship. You may still lose that promotion because you, you know, did the right thing at your job. You may, you know, lose certain privileges that you might have had in certain areas of your life because you stood for what was right. Even in the right way, there's still sometimes a price to pay. We must do it. That's the paradox of humility, of speaking the truth in love. And we know that we can do this. Because Jesus did it. Again, he's our example, even in this paradox of humility. One more scripture in this, then we'll move on. John 1.14, John says, The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of what? Grace and truth. That is, you could say grace, you could insert the word love from Paul, and, you know, and it's the same thing. Grace and truth, truth and love, it's the same idea. This is the paradox of humility that is actually powerful. Because Jesus spoke the truth, right? And sometimes he did it publicly in large groups in his, you know, teachings and sermons that are so nice and fluffy. The Beatitudes, oh, it, blessed are the meek, you know, blessed are the poor. That sounds like speaking the truth in love, so we can accept that. But then when he tells the Pharisees that you're sons of hell or you're a brood of vipers, you're like, whoa, you know, that doesn't sound very loving. When he's with the, the woman caught in adultery and says, where are your accusers? They've gone. I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. He's speaking the truth, and it seems a lot more loving than when he tells Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, you know? So it's, it's like, whoa, this is a paradox. Like, I don't understand. So sometimes, again, we have to deal with this too. Sometimes we have to be more forceful in our confrontation in the truth, even in love. Sometimes people aren't getting the, like, the fluffier, around-the-edge kind of message. We have to just be very direct sometimes. And we can do it lovingly, and it's going to feel awkward. It might even hurt them. It might be weird. We can do it because we, Jesus did. So sometimes there are moments where we, have to, we can do it kind of fluffy and nice. And sometimes we have to be like Jesus and say, hey, no, we can't do this. This is, this is done, right? 
but we can do it. And we, we see that Jesus did that. It was always, even when he was confrontational, there was always this heart behind him to make that person better. Even with the Pharisees, because they, they say they know better, and they act like they know better, and they should know better, but they're not really acting like it. So Jesus, I think, in a heart to try to wake them up, says, stop it. Like, you know the law better than anybody else, and yet you break it more than anybody else. Knock it off. So he can speak to people, and you can do this too. I can do this too. There are, you can speak to different people in different ways because you know them differently. There are certain levels that you can get with somebody because you have that relationship with them. Uh, or there's a history that you guys have that maybe you need to kind of take a step back and do it in a different way. But we know through the goal of truth and love, and Jesus being our example of this, that we can do it. Grace and truth, like Jesus, is strength under control. It is humility. Truth and love, as Paul says, is strength under control. It really is humility. So as, uh, let me finish this, this last thing for just a few minutes here. I want to look at a few benefits of humility. So we're kind of seeing, you know, how we do that and how Jesus did that and how we're supposed to do that. But let's look at some benefits that we can uh, experience uh, if we live lives of humility. So there's three I'll look at. I'll try to do it quickly. Uh, and then, so here we go. The first benefit of humility is we can receive God's grace. So Jesus tells a story in Luke 18. He tells a parable of two different men who come to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee and one is a tax collector. So the Pharisee, he starts with first. He comes to the temple, he prays really loudly, God, thank you that I'm not like these other sinners. God, thank you that I give all of my giving and all of my tithing and I give above and beyond and I'm so holy and righteous. I'm not like this tax collector over here. Thank you, amen. And that's his prayer. It's like, oh, that's weird. And then it comes over to scene number two, the tax collector, and it says he bowed his head and he's quite, all his prayer was is God have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's what Jesus says about these two men, Luke 18, 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Even the act of salvation is an act of humility. Even turning to Christ is saying, I am a sinner. I'm a broken person. I have need for someone bigger than me, better than me, stronger than me to pick up the pieces of my life and put them back together. That's an act of humility. And then even in our lives as followers of Jesus, uh, repentance is still an act of humility. We're not trying to cover up anything we've done. We're not trying to excuse what we've done. We say, okay, God, yeah, I'm guilty. I'm still a broken person. Could you repair this piece that's now broken through sin? That's an act of humility that we have to have, and God continually gives grace. So let me say this, and it may, hopefully it's not too controversial, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying. The only people who do not receive God's grace are those who do not think they need God's grace. God offers his grace to everyone who has ever lived, but the only people who do not receive God's grace are the people who do not think they need God's grace. Okay, but that's a benefit that we can experience of humility is receiving God's grace. Here's a second one. We can learn from the master. We looked at this verse a minute ago. Let's come back to it. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus, again speaking, says, Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That phrase there, let me, is important. Let me teach you. Learning requires humility. Jesus has so much to teach us, but we have to be teachable. And this is a general principle in life. So here's, you can have two options, two different kinds of people, and you decide who you'd rather pick, right, to be on your team. I would rather have someone who could do 80% of the, 
of a job, but be teachable than have someone on my team who can perform at 100% but thinks they know it all. Yeah, you agree with me on that? I'd rather have somebody who can do 80% of the job but be teachable rather than someone who could do 100%, never make a mistake, and yet they know it, right? And they know more than you know, and you're their boss, you know? They know more than you, and you've been doing this 30 years longer than they have, right? I think that's true. Humility is an attractive trait. So there's that also. So learning from Jesus requires humility. I don't want to, I want to know it all, but I don't want to be a know-it-all. See that there? When it comes to Jesus, I want to know all he wants to teach me. While still, no matter how much I learn, how much I know, how much I grow in his grace, in the knowledge of Christ, I always want to be like there's still more for me to learn. There's still more that I can attain. There's still more for me to do that I haven't done yet. That's a great place for us to be in. I want to know it all, but not be a know-it-all. I want to learn from Jesus his wisdom, his knowledge, his insight, his heart, his methods, and so I need to be teachable must be humble. That's a benefit of humility is to learn from the master. Here's the last one that we'll talk about here for just a minute. The third benefit of humility is then we can do great things for God. One more verse from Paul, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. Paul writes, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. So what Paul is saying here is you're basically like a treasure chest. When pirates go hunting for treasure, they know it's going to be in a chest, but do they care about the chest? If it's empty, they don't care. (laughs) They care about what's inside of the chest. Paul is saying that's what our lives are. That's who we are. Basically, Paul is saying check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's kind of what, if if I were going to write the message version 2.0, that's what I would put in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Just check yourself before you wreck yourself, okay? So I believe that God has greatness in store for you, but it's because he's great. Now, I think you're great, and God thinks you're great, but he's really great. Okay, that's, that's the whole point. And I believe that God has great plans for you, but it's because his plan is great, not because your plan is great. And no one is immune to this idea. You know, sometimes we think, well, ministers can fall into this trap very easily. Well, because the church is going well, man, I'm doing a great job, and everything's going well, and look at me, and I'm indispensable, and no one could do this church without me. If I left and just walked away, this thing would fall apart. It's like, that's how ministers, like, blow everything, is when they start to feel that way, and th- they, make, they slip up, they make mistakes, they, they just get into all, it's the same thing in Zephaniah. The root of sin is pride. So we have to have this uh, thing that it's God's power at work within us, not our power. It's that he's great, not us. And John the Baptist is a great example of this, too. So John came before Jesus, right? Older cuz, came and doing his thing. Large ministry, very well-known, kind of a celebrity in his own right. And then when Jesus shows up, some of John's people start going over to Team Jesus. But John still has this small contingent of people that are really upset about this. And they don't like this. And they come to John and they say, what's the deal with your cousin? He's taking all your followers, you know? So John has a decision to make here. What's he going to do? And what does he say? He says, I must decrease so that he might increase. It's not a competition. I'm not trying to get more followers or likes or clicks than Jesus over here. This is the point. I'm the opening act to the greatest musician who's ever lived, okay? 
Uh, I, I'm, I'm like the, the appetizer to the most amazing meal you'll ever taste. He's like, that's the point. I was setting the stage, getting things ready, stirring up some stuff so that he could come in and just start going. I must decrease so that he might increase. If I want to do great things for God, it, there has to be less of me. Less is more. So I don't have this on the screen. It's on the Bible app. So you get the Bible app people, you get a bonus today. Yes. Um, so I, here, I just, I just want to close quickly with what I'm going to call the markers of humility. And if you're trying to write all these down, I'm going to go way too fast for you, but I can get them to you later. So if you need them, either go to the Bible app or call me, email me, text me, whatever. Let me just give some markers of humility, a few questions to consider about how we're doing in this area of our life, okay? Markers of humility. First question, can you be self-deprecating? Can you be the butt of a joke? That's a marker of humility. How well do you take criticism? That's a marker of humility. How good of a listener are you? That's a marker of humility. How much credit do you need versus how much credit do you give? That's a marker of humility. How easily and how often do you feel slighted or offended by others? That's a marker of humility. How easily do you admit mistakes and seek forgiveness? It's a marker of humility. How easily do you extend forgiveness? It's a marker of humility. What percentage of your conversations are about you? It's a marker of humility. Can you take instructions or advice from someone older than you? You know, one thing that maybe the generation below me, a phrase maybe have heard is, okay, boomer. Have you heard that? We're like in the okay boomer generation. That's not very humble, <laughs> right? We have this idea, I think, as we progress and advance in technology and medicine and all this stuff and media. It's like, that's why I think Memorial Day is so important. We don't want to forget those that came before us. We do stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before us. We didn't build any of this, you know. We're, we're fortunate because of those that came before. So can we take instructions from those that are older? And the flip side can you take instruction or advice from someone who is younger than you? Well, they have not been through what I've been through, and they don't know what I know. Not the point. Can't, are we able to do That's a marker of humility. Here's the last one. How often do you seek God's wisdom and insight? It's a marker of humility. The problem with Zephaniah and the people in Judah, he's saying is, hey, you're not seeking God for anything. Like, you even probably know you shouldn't be doing most of the things you're doing, and yet you ignore that feeling inside, you ignore the Holy Spirit inside of you saying, no, abort mission, stop, turn around, repent. So we want to obviously always seek God's wisdom and insight. It's a marker of humility. Now, let me just say as we close, this is not to be like um, a guilt trip, these questions. It's meant to be more of a gut check or a heart check. Like, how am I doing? How is my heart? How are my emotions? How are my intentions? Am I living a life of humility? So let's not fall into the trap of pride because we become small and unteachable. We become less like Jesus. But instead, may we live lives of humility that understand less is more. Let's pray. God, my prayer today, I think our prayer today is that we would be people of humility. That we would follow the example of Jesus and his humility. That as Paul said, even though it's difficult, may we strive to speak the truth and do it in love for the betterment of those around us, to defend those that need to be defended, to correct those that need to be corrected for their good as well. 
May we have that humble heart so that we can receive and extend your grace. Not just receive your grace, but then extend it by living a life of humility. God, we want to learn from the Master. We want to learn from Jesus. And we want to do great things for you. So help us to be people of humility. Teach us, help us, equip us, and then use us for your glory as we strive to live lives of humility. So God, I pray that you would help us to have that experience this week to strive to live that way with people that we work with and live with and live around and rub shoulders with to remain humble in who we are and who you've called us to be yet to do great things for you in the process. That's my heart and that's our prayer today. So I pray a special blessing over us as we leave this place today. Give us a great rest of our holiday weekend and bring us back next weekend ready for more of you in Jesus' name.